Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Ida Gok in Tbilisi. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 21st of May. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. All right, it's Ido. He's back on the pod. Ido, let's get right into it. What in world news do you think will go down in history or just what what stood out this past week? My moment of the week is the ceasefire that was signed between Israel and Hamas, which should end about 11 days of intense fighting between the two parties that have been occurring mostly in the Gaza Strip. There's been a period of very intense hostilities triggered originally by tensions around Jerusalem and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which had escalated by about the 10th of May into pretty intense fighting with Hamas firing rockets at Israeli cities and Israel retaliating with intense bombardments of the territory. And in total, about 230 Palestinians have been killed, including dozens of children and 12 people have also been killed in Israel. This latest episode is yet another example of how quiet for Israelis is a very different thing to peace for Palestinians. And there hadn't really been a a major escalation of this scale since 2014, when there was a pretty intense war between Israel and Hamas. And some Israelis apparently had been lulled into a slight sense of comfort that perhaps the conflict could be ignored and swept under the rug and rapprochements with, uh, with, with other Arab states in the region, for instance, the UAE, could be prioritised over solving the conflict and the Palestinians could sort of be swept under the rug. And this latest bout of fighting shows that that very clearly isn't the case. And unless there is progress in the diplomatic negotiations to end the conflict, the only way it can be ended is with a two-state solution where the Palestinians have a state alongside the Israelis, then there is ultimately not much ground to believe that this will not simply happen again. If you would like to hear more from Ido on this, and you did not listen to our podcast last week, um, it was on Israel-Palestine. I would encourage you to to have a listen, and we will continue to follow this, this tragic story at the New Statesman. My moment is that this week, U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken and Russian um, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov met. And I was expecting some zingers exchanged, um, but actually they they seemed to both take a more conciliatory approach and, and seemed to signal that there is room for the US and Russia to work together. It was very different than Blinken's first meeting with his Chinese counterpart, which turned into like hours of back and forth taunts. So a welcome development in US-Russian relations. 
Okay, with that, let's bring in our guest. We are delighted to have with us today the president and CEO of the International Rescue Committee, David Miliband. Um, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Emily. Good to be with you. So the IRC just released a report on ending the hunger crisis, and the report very intentionally connects the COVID-19 pandemic with the hunger crisis. Could you speak a bit about why you and the IRC thought it was important to, to make that connection? Yeah, I mean, I think if we'd been having this podcast a year ago, I would have said to you, the biggest impact of COVID will be on people's health, and that uh, it's going to be a killer in the places that the International Rescue Committee works because of the uh, weak health conditions of our clients and because of the weak health infrastructure. A year later, of course, there has been COVID, and a lot of it has not been found because there's very weak testing in the 200 field sites where the International Rescue Committee works. But the truth is that the biggest impact of COVID has not been the health impact, it's been the economic impact. Mm. We know that there's been a 40% increase in the number of people dependent on humanitarian aid around the world to a figure of uh, 235 million. And we published that figure in our emergency watch list in January. What we've done now is take the anecdotal evidence of our own nutrition programs, which have recorded uh, a 50%, actually 55% year-on-year increase in the number of children requiring treatment for uh, acute malnutrition in 11 countries, which we put down to the economic impact of COVID. And we've done some work about how the economics of COVID and the economics of lockdowns is going to impact uh, hunger globally. Mm -hmm. Uh, We think, and the World um, Food Programme agree with us, that an additional 35 million people, additional people, are going to be hungry in 2021. Uh, We know uh, that uh, in total, uh, the WFP, the World Food Programme, estimates 270 million people will be acutely food insecure or at high risk across uh, about 80 countries, so half the world's countries. 45% of the world's countries. And just to finish the picture, because you mentioned famine, which is obviously the highest level of food insecurity. Food insecurity is not really a a very appropriate term for for famine. Uh, They're saying 34 million people are on the brink of famine, and they're in places where there's not just the COVID impact, there's conflict and there's climate crisis. Places like Yemen, places like Northeast Nigeria, places like Somalia, places like South Sudan. Those are the famine risk countries. So apologies for the long answer, but that's the context in which we think it's right to show that to the extent that famine is the tip of an iceberg, of a poverty iceberg, it's an iceberg that's growing in size, uh, not just because of structural conditions to do with the conflict and the climate crisis, but also because of the COVID impact. You know, you're mentioning these both present and looming crises, right? They're they're already with us and also they're going to get worse. You were on the independent panel for pandemic preparedness and response. And and one of the findings, the key findings of that panel is how underprepared we were as as individual nations and as a world for the COVID-19 crisis. Do you think that we will learn from that lack of preparedness in dealing with the hunger crisis in dealing with the climate crisis? Or do you feel that we've, we've not really taken the lessons of lack of preparedness from the crisis that we just went through moving forward? Well, the, the, there are many terrible things about COVID, but one is that it was predicted. It was right. predictable. And uh, 11 reports, the most shocking, I know I'm a bit in love with statistics, so I, I go a bit statistics crazy, but the 
The statistic that is, jumps out from, our, from the report of the independent panel, which remember was set up by the World Health Assembly uh, last year. It was intended to look at how to prevent the next pandemic. The, the most striking statistic is the simplest one, 11 reports in 16 years with a series of recommendations for the WHO, the World Health Organization, but also for national governments and for the global system. And basically the reports had very sensible recommendations, not just in respect of financing, but in respect of structures and political leadership. And they were basically diluted or ignored. And so the record is a very uh, telling one. I mean, if we can't use the fact of this crisis, this uh, tens of trillions of dollars lost, millions of people uh, died, if we can't use the impact, the momentum, the focus from this crisis, then it, it really is a source of despair for dealing with um, other crises that we face in the global system, whether climate or a conflict or, or, or other uh, matters. Now, my own view is that uh, the jury is still out about this. In the independent panel, we said we needed an emergency meeting of the General Assembly of the UN. We needed a new global health threats council at the level of heads of government, not just health ministers, because pandemics are different from other health issues. They're global in nature, uh, not just local in nature. We need uh, assessed contributions. That means compulsory contributions to the World Health Organization to boost its independence as well as its funding. We need the International Monetary Fund to be monitoring preparedness in its annual reports on all countries in the world. And so we need to build the momentum over the next few months to make sure that leaders lead. Mm -hmm. And the, the relationship to the, um, the famine issue that you, that you rightly refer to is that the famine question is very localized, very focused, very acute. And the danger is that it gets put off because it's not seen as important enough by the G7, the group of seven leading industrialized countries, I've said this week that they can't call themselves leading if they don't lead. Mm -hmm. And we know that the Biden administration does represent a new globally oriented multilateral broom that's been brought into Washington, D.C. and is coming globally. But it's not just the G7 world anymore. It needs to be a G20 issue. It needs to involve China. Uh, it needs to involve countries like South Africa as well. Um, it needs to be all continents. And so I think it's a, it's a moment for mobilization. We shouldn't spend our time in predictions. Uh, we can all have fears about the lack of global leadership, but here are both long-term issues and short-term ones, because famine is a short-term issue, that need to be addressed. In the report, uh, you highlight the inequity, the global inequity that there is with vaccine distribution. You write that vaccine distribution is blatantly unjust and not strategic. And you call for a billion doses to be handed uh, to COVAX, which is the WHO's vaccine sharing initiative by uh, no later than the 1st of September. And you want 2 billion doses handed over by mid 2022. India is the largest, in theory, the largest uh, supplier to COVAX, and, but uh, has blocked exports of vaccines because they're facing their own horrendous outbreak of COVID. So COVAX is getting many, many, many times fewer doses than it, than it should. Are we going to meet that target? And if not, what steps should we take to ensure better distribution to the developing world? Yeah, well, without action, we won't meet the target. So on current trends, well, we're not meeting the target. And the panel was um, clear in, in calling for change in three different areas. Um, area one is to do with redistribution. So excess vaccines, 50 million excess vaccines in the UK, 
uh, probably 200 million excess vaccines in the US, more maybe, because they've ordered more than is needed for their own population. So one, redistribution. Uh, two, production. There's a massive set of issues to do with driving up production. And that's not just a long-term issue for, net, for the future pandemics. We need to drive up production uh, now, including through technology transfer and voluntary licensing. And the independent panel said that if there can't be an agreement on voluntary licensing and on technology transfer in the next three months, then the vaccine waiver, the IP, the internet, intellectual property waiver issues need to be uh, on the table. But the third thing, and this is an additional element that I think people really don't haven't yet come to terms with, there's been great effort to do the research on vaccines. There's some debate about financing of COVAX, um, but there is no proper debate yet about how to effectively distribute vaccines, how to turn vaccines into vaccinations in developing countries. There are, there's a story in The Economist a couple of weeks ago, sorry to mention another um, a competitor um, journal, uh, but um, there was a story in The Economist about uh, some vaccines sent to uh, various developing countries that never got out of the capital. And as an NGO that works with the hardest to reach people, the International Rescue Committee, we, we want issues of the cold chain that gets vaccines out of capitals and into far-flung areas addressed. And so unless we address all three issues, we're not going to actually get the health impact uh, that is necessary. But the India situation shows you that we're in a race between the mutation of the virus and the distribution of the vaccine. And if we don't win the race, then we all suffer. One of the things you cite in, in the report is this idea that um, countries were too, essentially too uh, kind of lax, too, they didn't take aggressive enough containment strategies. And you say that that was partly driven by the devaluing of science in guiding decision making. But it seems to me that another part is that a lot of the prevailing opinions on uh, in the scientific community in terms of uh, scientific advisors to governments was just wrong. Um, and you can cite things like travel bans, which uh, the, the scientific consensus was that they didn't work in containing pandemics. Advice on hand washing, which we now know uh, doesn't really affect how COVID spreads, which was highly emphasized at the beginning. All uh, uh, herd immunity, even the, the, the theory of herd immunity, which was widely shared among, among some scientists, isn't part of the story and how we can uh, prevent the, this sort of thing happening in future better adaptation to a complex set of new circumstances. For instance, um, moving on from a pandemic preparedness plan, which is based around a disease comparable to the flu rather than uh, the type of disease that COVID is. Well, that's very interesting. I mean, the first thing to say is that if a precautionary principle had been followed, then we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in today. So that is to do with the almost the philosophical stance that's uh, taken in respect of low probability but high impact events. And I don't know if you've read this book by Michael Lewis called Premonition, but it's very compelling in, in a micro level of showing how a country like the US, which has more resources than ever before, ends up, I mean, corrupting is not quite the right word, but corrupting or corroding the value of independent scientific advice. So uh, I think the first thing I'd say is that there's a, there's a precautionary principle that needs to be applied. Then the second point is that you're absolutely right to say the measures of preparedness that existed before. Johns Hopkins did this ranking, I'm sure you know about this or have talked about it, where UK and US were ranked one and two for preparedness for a pandemic. And political leadership 
wasn't part of the equation. And obviously, uh, it's certainly in the US, um, you know, injecting bleach into your arms was not one of the recommended uh, vehicles for preventing the spread of the pandemic. And so the, um, the political leadership element of this is absolutely key. There's a third element, which I think is important, and it goes to the equity issue that you, you hinted at. Even the travel ban issue, if you, if you dig into that, I mean, the reason people thought travel bans weren't relevant is that there was a presumption that diseases were spread from poor countries. And since poor countries didn't have many people traveling, allegedly, travel bans weren't relevant. Now, of course, in the case of the uh, COVID, you had 40,000 flights from Wuhan, you had then people uh, going to Europe, you had the ski soaps of Europe, it then goes to America, etc., and so I think that you're right to say that the way politicians engage with science has to be up to date with the nature of the threat. It has to be flexible in its thinking. But I do think the recommendation of the, the independent panel on pandemic preparedness and response, that there's a, there's a question of philosophy here. What's your, do you take a precautionary stance or not? Do you run the risk of a false alarm? And the point of the Michael Lewis book the, the, that I mentioned, I'm not sure if you've read it, but he, he makes the point in 1976 in the US, there was a fear of swine flu. The CDC, the Center for Disease Control Director General said, look, we're going to have to vaccinate everyone. And in the end, the disease um, died out without everyone being vaccinated and the man was hounded away. And uh, he traces the loss of faith in the precautionary principle to, to that. And um, it, it's a classic thing in, in politics that uh, sins of omission get penalized less than sins of commission and in respect of pandemics you need systems that are geared with a bias towards action rather than inaction and just to put it very bluntly if you wait to see what the statistics on reports of covid show you're obviously going to miss all the asymptomatic transmission that's why a precautionary principle that when you see one death you know that's the absolute leading uh, indicator of bigger trouble elsewhere, there needs to be a reaction. I think your point about our assumptions about the direction in which viruses spread is a great one. I was in India when, when we sort of realized that this was going to be a global pandemic. And can remember it was Italian tourists coming to India, right, that who, who helped spread the virus, which I think is not necessarily the bias that people have. But you, you're speaking about kind of overlearning well, not overlearning the wrong lessons, just learning the wrong lessons. One thing that I, that you know we've been speaking about on this podcast is um, the world coming together against China, and particularly the U.S. trying to lead this coalition against China, and COVID starting in China being one of the driving factors of the, the bipartisan consensus in Washington, where everyone is a China hawk now. I mean, not everyone, but first of all, do you think that we're that we're learning the wrong lesson there? And second of all. Does this return to Cold War bipolar thinking, this is kind of a leading question, work against what you're calling for, which is the world working together to to deal with the effects of this pandemic, to deal with the climate crisis, to deal with famine? Well, the obvious answer is yes. So thanks for leading the witness. No um, problem. The, the, uh, but but l- let me say something hopefully slightly more interesting than just saying uh, yes. We, and by that I guess I mean the Western world, we've got to learn to be able to cooperate with China as well as compete with China. If we don't learn that lesson, the world is going to be a much more unstable and dangerous place as well as a poorer place. I take the very strong view that it is essential that on public health, on climate crisis, on a range of 
even on the some of the um, international development and conflict issues. It's essential that we don't just find a modus vivendi with, with China, a way of living with, with China, but we find a way of cooperating with them. I, I have no illusions about the difficulties that are presented by that, but I also think that it's a danger of, of people in the West to, to ignore the fact that the Chinese are serious, strategic, thoughtful people, serious people, who they recognize that the, 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 the cliche, no one's safe until everyone's safe, is actually meaningful. Uh, in respect of global public health. And I had this, I hope not naive view, that the Biden administration could make common cause on global health and on climate issues or, or with the Chinese government. Actually, I don't think that's impossible. I take your point that everyone's China hawk in, in DC. But actually, um, although there have been some fireworks, the administration has seriously tried to uh, muster an alliance for cooperation with China as well as confrontational mm -hmm. competition with China. And the people I consult who are experts on China tell me that the Chinese view is that this is a serious American administration. It's highly, full of highly competent uh, people. They don't use the phrase, these are people we can do business with, but they're people that um, they respect. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's really important that if we end up thinking there's a global health solution or a global climate solution that can be regionalized or balkanized on it in a Cold War way, we're going to be in a terrible mess. And I uh, very much hope that when the debates get going on the, for example, on this independent panel report, we had a Chinese scientist uh, part of the uh, team, we didn't go into the question of the origins, we weren't given a mandate to look at in a forensic way about the origins. And so in some ways that made it easier to forge consensus. But, but I want to just highlight one, one issue where it's striking to me that we got full agreement from the panel, Americans, Chinese, etc. We have recommended that the World Health Organization have full-scale investigatory powers to go into any country to investigate an outbreak to demand samples, to insist on multi-entry visas for inspectors. These are essentially the powers of the International Atomic Energy Authority. Now, historically, uh, there's been a battle between sovereignty and international um, locus on a range of issues. The IAEA is a bit of an exception. We need to make sure, we as a world need to make sure that the World Health Organization does have the powers. And as I say, there was there were Chinese and American support. It wasn't obviously governmental. It was an independent panel. But that's a very good test case of whether or not countries can recognize common interests, not just selfish interests. On a very different note, you're a former British foreign minister. Over the past few days, we've seen a dramatic escalation in violence in Israel and Gaza. Um, I wonder what your thoughts were on the immediate conflict, but also on the kind of longer term perspective of, of this conflict, because as you know, the situation hasn't really changed very much or made very much diplomatic progress since you were foreign minister, really. And what is your view on, on the longer term prospects of, of this conflict? Well, I'm extremely, uh, my, my, my feelings are extremely dark on this um, issue. I mean, I was foreign minister at the time of the 2008-9 Gaza conflict. Um, we presented the ceasefire resolution at the Security Council in early January 2006, uh, 2009, sorry. 
Um, we actually got the support of the Bush administration at the time for the ceasefire resolution. In the end, at, at the absolute last minute, they would, they, they, instead of uh, supporting it, they abstained. What, what's happened, I think, since then, is that we've seen a myth grow. And the myth is that the Palestinian issue can be ignored in thinking about the future of the Middle East. And this conflict has exploded that myth. It has shown that the idea that the Palestinian question can be sidelined, that uh, people in Gaza can be immiserated, that the uh, political crisis in the Palestinian Authority can be ignored in the, in the West Bank, uh, is just wrong. And you can't have two million people in Gaza, millions of people in the West Bank, whose aspirations and hopes are, are just left to the side. Um, so the myth has been exploded. Uh, there is a new front which didn't exist in the same way before. I, I spoke to someone um, who's been very senior in uh, Israeli government before who, who made two points to me. One, who were the critical group of pharmacists in the responding to COVID? Actually, apparently 40% of pharmacists in Israel are um, Arab Israelis. Um, and what do we see now, this person said, in uh, Israel? The, the president, I think, even talked about the danger of a civil war. This is a new, a new front. And this is in a context where Jordan has political instability, uh, where Lebanon has economic and political uh, instability. And I think that the, uh, the, the price of a decade of, um, in the first instance, failed efforts and then no efforts really on the Palestinian question are now coming home to roost in an extremely, well, obviously in a, in a fatal way, for apparently over 200 Palestinians and 10 Israelis, 11 Israelis. It's a very, very dark situation. And the lesson, I think, is that, first, the Palestinian issue can't be ignored. Uh, second, that while region, regional questions are important, but they can't substitute for the Palestinian question. I mean, there was a, there's a previous myth that all questions in the Middle East came back to the Palestinian question. That was wrong because uh, the issues in Syria are not, are not fundamentally Palestinian issues. They're not, they're not about that. They're not traced back to that. So the regional question uh, matters, but it can't substitute uh, for the Palestinian question. And thirdly, there's a leadership issue, a political leadership issue on both sides, because there's an article in the Foreign Affairs by um, Martin Indyk and a, and a very powerful article by um, Aaron David Miller. These are two... Um, um, American participants and now commentators on the Middle East, and they make the point that there's a there's a there's a weird sort of dance between Hamas and the Netanyahu government in which that they the other plays a almost a, an excuse giving role for them, and that's a, and the biggest losers are Palestinian and Israeli citizens, and it grieves me a lot. I think that there is an exasperation on both the left and the right, the political left and the political right with multilateral fora, right? On the left, you have people who say that these are um, inequitable gatherings and institutions and, and they've consistently helped the richest and left the poorest behind. And on the right, you have people saying, well, you know, uh, this is the sort of Trump ethos, right? That we need to protect our sovereignty above all. And what has global cooperation ever done for us? As we head to the G7, what value do you think multilateral convenings still have? Well, they only have value if they are used mm -hmm. in valuable ways. 
the multilateral system, certainly over the last five years, um, has been blocked, obviously, by the uh, Trump administration since they didn't believe in it. So there's no there's no value in the institution per se. There's only value if it performs tasks, mm -hmm. and that takes leadership. My own view is that the exasperation um, has a slightly different route than the one that you say. My feeling is that the multilateral system is is too weak for those of us who believe that an interconnected world, an interdependent world, needs governance at the global level as well as the national level. And it's too strong for those who believe that we need to return to the Treaty of Westphalia of 1648 and just have a, a, a world of nations. And it's stuck betwixt and between. And the Brexit question in the UK uh, demonstrates this, American neuralgia about signing any international treaty, even the International Convention on the Law of the Sea, which they actually follow but refuse to sign, the neuralgia about international institutions speaks to this push-me-pull-you about an international system that needs to do more but isn't empowered to, to do so. And just in parenthesis, without wishing to go totally down the rabbit hole, uh, the World Health Organization has been given more and more tasks in the last 20 years, but less and less power to do them, and less and less finance to do them, and less and less independence to do them. So that's the, I think that's the root of it. And now the G7 only deserves to exist if it deserves to exist. <laughs> it can only um, deserve to exist if it does stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's real, there's real onus this, this year, because Trump is no longer an excuse. You can't just say, oh, well, Trump didn't allow us to do anything, so what's the point of doing it? I mean, there's a famine compact but as you know, the UK is cutting the amount of money going in to tackle famine. That's the, that's the issue. So I think there's real need for plain talking amongst the G7 uh, to this point that if we're going to call, if they're going to call themselves a leadership group, they've got to lead. Um, now, obviously, part of that leadership is to recognize that the world has changed and that it's the, the multilateralism of which you speak has to be broader than seven economic democracies. And that's the importance of the G20, which we in the independent panel on, on pandemics recommended should co-chair this global health threats council. But I think this is really important. I mean, it's 60 years now since John Kennedy declared a declaration of interdependence. He did it on Independence Day in 1962. And this inter interdependence has grown much stronger, but the international system has not grown proportionately. And that's, I think, the issue. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is a section that we like to call "You Ask Us." Uh, our listener question this week is: Is it fair to vaccinate teenagers in the rich world before elderly people in the developing world? I think that the uh distribution of vaccines needs to be according to need and according to impact. There's a report this week from the University of Southern California about the priority groups around the world, starting with health workers going on to the elderly. Uh, the truth about the teenagers in the Western world is that there are more, enough, more than enough vaccines in the Western world to cover them and to cover the priority groups in the so-called developing world. And there's an interest in doing so because the teenagers in the so-called developed world are not going to be safe until the mutations are brought under control. And that takes a global vaccination program. And at the moment, this University of Southern California report shows that it's not going to be till the third quarter of 2023 till the world gets vaccinated. And by then, the mutations will have gone crazy. And so their report is about how we bring forward those uh, vaccination timetables. And I think that's essential. Yeah, I've I've been looking into this question, um, and one of we the wish to ask you, not me. <laughs> <laughs> one of the one of the thin, themes that comes up is uh, what we do if we need boosters. There's obviously the the vaccine production capability, which is being used for the rich world at the moment, but the rich world is nearing completion of their vaccination program. Got pretty high coverage in places like the UK, the US, slightly lower in in the EU, but they're going to get there at some point this year. And the question is, rich countries will reserve their production capacity, yeah. their theoretical production capacity for boosters, or whether they will allow it to be allocated for doses which could go to the developing world. And it's quite an open question. But I think the kind of political case for making the argument to your electorates that doses should be given away, even if that comes potentially at the expense of the health of your own people is very, very difficult to make. But I think there is at least the kind of potential for this, this argument should potentially at least be, be, be debated, um, if not necessary. Well, I think there are two things I would say about that, Udo. I mean, one is that the point I made about the need for voluntary licensing, for technology transfer, for ramping up a production is even more true in the light of what you've just said. Secondly, We've got to realize that there is no post-COVID in prospect. We're going to be living with COVID. And living with COVID means continuing to take public health measures. I mean, it can continue to take the public, the, the masking seriously. I mean, that's what the countries that were affected by SARS did after SARS. I mean, Japanese tourists were still wearing masks, you know, uh, two years ago, coming into Heathrow Airport or coming into uh, Dulles in, in DC. And so I think that the new precautionary principle that I talked about doesn't just apply to the Public Health Emergency of International Concern Committee at the WHO, it needs to apply to all of us. And as you know, if we're on a plane, we need to be wearing a mask. My kids are wearing masks at school. I don't know if that's going to be essential, but I think that continued precautions, especially as we get into the next flu season, because the mask wearing has reduced the flu um, significantly from uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, we need to maintain that precautionary principle as individuals if we want to keep this thing under control. Before we let you go, um, we always close by saying what we're going to look to in the world next week. 
What in the world, the wonderful world of world affairs, um, will you be keeping an eye on in the week ahead? The week ahead for me is Afghanistan, Ethiopia, Yemen. These are three enormous humanitarian crises. They're places where uh, 1,100 IRC staff in Afghanistan, 800 in Yemen, um, 600 in Ethiopia. And I'm desperate to see some humanitarian diplomacy in those uh, places. The Biden administration took some good first steps. It now needs to take the second and third steps to get some real progress. And Ido, what is your moment of the week to come? I'll be looking at uh, Syria, which is holding a presidential election next week. Obviously, this is not going to be a competitive race. Bashar al-Assad has been in power for 20 years and he will continue to be in power. It's a sham in every sense of the word. It has no bearing on democracy at all. Large parts of Syria are not under regime control. Um, obviously, within the parts that are under regime control, there is no political, meaningful political activity to speak of. But nonetheless, this election will be important in terms of signalling to both Syrians who live uh, under the regime and also those in exile and the international community, that Bashar al-Assad has no intention of handing over power or committing to any kind of meaningful liberalisation or um, power-sharing agreements. This is uh, unquestionably a brutal dictatorship. He's going to win with you know, out, outsized scores. There is no question about it. This election will, will serve to signal to Syrians and to the world what kind of a leader Assad intends to to be as he winds up his military campaign uh, to remain in power after over 10 years of civil war. And what will you be looking forward to, Emily? Mine is not so much an event that will be happening, but rather the anniversary of an event that has happened. Next week marks the one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, which obviously set off a summer of of protests in support of Black life. So we will we will mark that next week. To me, uh, it's a moment to reflect on how far we've come in some respects and how much attention the protests got. But on the other hand, how truly not far we have come in terms of police reform and increased respect for, for Black life. And with that, all that is left is for us to thank you so much, uh, David Miliband, for joining us on the podcast this week. It was a real pleasure. Thank you, Emily. And thank you, Eden. If you have enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, leave a review. You can also subscribe for free to the newsletter component of this, which is at newstatesman.com slash world review. And you can follow all our international coverage at our international homepage, newstatesman.com forward slash international. Our producer has been Chris Stone. Thank you so much for listening and until next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. 
Follow Electoral Dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.